0: Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Seek Outside Podcast. My name is Dennis and today Kevin and I are joined by Tyler White. Tyler can be found on YouTube, t Survival, and also on Instagram, t Survival, and we're going to talk about survival today. We get into many topics including electric unicycles and using an anthill to find north. So, without further ado, Tyler White. You know what an electric unicycle is? Uh, Well, I mean, it's an electric bike, but it's got Uh, one wheel. It's it's like a Segway with one wheel. And I have one, and I was playing with it, and
1: I got back into the, the stands of timber, and there was just, like, fallen timber everywhere. And normally, I don't do this, but I was dumb, I was watching my wheel, and I was you know how cow trails are like a web of spider web, right? right. So I got turned around and I'm like, where am I at? You know, because I wasn't paying attention, I was trying to balance on the wheel and ended up hiking out for like a couple hours. It was supposed to be like three minutes from camp. I came back in three hours later trying to figure it out because I'd gotten so lost I had to handrail the road and back. So um, that's yeah, a,
2: that's an excellent starting topic to the podcast. Tyler's Electric unicycle. <laughs> electric unicycle. Yeah. So, what you need to do is access really remote areas on your electric unicycle and give us the pitch for why live. the why the unicycle.
1: Why the unicycle? I'm. Hmm. I don't know, man. I, as a kid, I always like to wander. I've got some pretty intense wanderlust and curiosity about things, and I think that's why I'm so interested in survival and the outdoors and stuff. I like to run. I like to ride motorcycles and then unicycles. Like running with a motorcycle, I don't even know how to put it. It's the weirdest. It's the strangest looking. Like you're just buzzing along on a wheel that looks like a suitcase.
2: It's goofy. So, you, so you're kind of like motor, like
1: that advertisement yeah. for. <laughs> I had think about that for a second. Yeah, yeah. No, I. You know, I bought one because I looked like fun to ride. That's all. That's as far as my thought process. And then there was a really steep learning curve where I was wrecking in the. uh, I I went over to a park we've got, and I was just trying to like make it from one tree to the other without turfing it. So this unicycle I've got is all sorts of beat up. No, the. uh, Just backing up a little about that. The reason I was mentioning that is, I, I couldn't get through all of the fallen timber. The timber was so messed up, and I ended up having to go through these timber patches, and. You have to scramble over a thow- fallen timber. And these this unicycle is like, I don't know, 50 pounds. And I'm carrying it on my shoulder. And I've got um basically motorcycle armor and a full face uh um mountain bike helmet so that if I wreck, you know, because if you're if you're on an electric unicycle going 25 miles an hour, it's like standing vertical and tripping twenty-five. <laughs> so I'm just covered in in body armor, I call it, but I ended up ended up having to carry that thing out. And, you know, I was laughing at myself. I'm like, oh yeah, you think you know your survival, blah, blah, blah. You got lost like a hundred feet from camp and you know <clears throat> I felt a bit stupid about it. But I ended up getting into a clearing and figured out what the sun was, used an ant hill to find north, got oriented again properly and just hiked down the ridgeline to a to a road and just handrailed the road back. I mean, it's stupid. Anybody can get lost. So I mean, y-
2: You've got a couple really good points going on here that i want mm-hmm. to dive into um one is using an ant hill to find north yeah but but i still want to like hone in on the electric unicycle a little bit first. <laughs> like how far how fast what are the limits of it
1: <laughs> uh sorry i'm coughing again um so it depends on which one you get the really expensive ones i'm just i am and I'm new at this. I've only been playing with these things for a few months. The really, like the $3,000 and up ones, will go, I think, 50 miles an hour. And they've got, yeah,
0: shaking his head, no, <laughs> yeah, no way, <laughs> no way. <laughs>
1: there, there's a, there's a mountain in Colorado where I watched a video with a guy riding one of these electric unicycles down the mountain. and I, so you've got to, it'll, it'll wirely, it'll Bluetooth connect your phone, so it can tell you your speed, right? And if you're going downhill, I think he reached 65 something miles an hour maximum. Now they don't go that fast on the flat. You've got to be you're you're essentially at the maximum capacity of the thing, trying not to fall, right? Um mine goes 25 miles an hour because I'm not, I'm only moderately dumb. So you're you're only just it,
0: beginning. You've only been you, doing it for four
1: yeah, months. No. Yeah, And those man, those there's one called a Sherman, veteran Sherman. It's a brand new company that a bunch of the, these little unicycle nerds broke away from. And we want bigger and faster. And it's like a 75 pound wheel. It's pretty much batteries and engine or motor, I should say. And it'll go ridiculously fast. Like, i have so fast that you have to push harder because the wind is holding you up. And like 16 miles an hour on one of these uh, unicycles doesn't sound fast, but like that's good enough for me. That's as fast as I need to be going, you know. And that's that's really slow. This goes this will go twenty five miles an hour. But if you think about it, like twenty miles an hour on a wheel, it's a little freaky because you're it, once you ride one, you can your your knees will bend to absorb the suspension. But like you can trip. I don't know how to put it any other way. But if you hit a little bit of a speed bump and you don't have a suspended knee, you go up, the wheel goes down, and then you the wheel starts a death wobble and you ditch it. I've done it in the grass a couple of times and done it on mountain biking trail. So, so are you you could
2: take it on mountain biking
1: trail? Oh yeah. I mean, I don't know if you're supposed to, but I've done it a lot. I I thought that's that's like the best thing to do. And I they they have a new one, a Gotway, I think is the name of the company, it has a of suspension on it. And all this technology, all the new suspensions and stuff, from what I can tell, is really new. So I'm I'm super ecstatic at the the idea that there might be some larger wheeled suspension electronic unicycles that you can take on Mountain. Bike. Just sounds like stupid of man. Are
0: you are you strapped into this thing? No, you're just standing on it. So you're just standing? You're just is standing it like it. Is it like a unicycle? Is there a seat that you're kind of well, no, there's no seat. They,
1: oh. they make they make versions of it with seats. Like a lot of this stuff picked up really big in New York and California in the cities because they work great on the streets and honest with you if i lived in new york and i didn't have a vehicle and they'll go he asked me how far they'll go they'll go 50 miles i think is the distance for mine so some of them will go up to 100 just depending on your battery capacity your ability to recharge
2: maybe we could have angie start taking her <laughs> electric unicycle to uh work and then she could charge it in junction and ride it back
1: <laughs> <laughs> she, could, she could
2: ditch that at fancy starbucks suv
1: you know just take her electric <laughs> unicycle no, I, I, they're smart in the city. I get it. Like, it's like a, a, a segue minus the nerd.
0: The
1: nerd. <laughs> so have you, have you ridden a segue? Oh, yeah, I had. So I was a cop a long time ago for a, uh, for a college. And this college had a large campus and it's in Utah. So you can access the whole campus indoors. Now, it was big enough that you had to run for like, 12 minutes to get to the other side, or you had to get out and drive a vehicle all the way around the outside. So they just went and bought it. You know, and I'm just thinking, this is like mall cop nerd as well, but they were effective. Man, I could sneak up on people doing stuff they weren't supposed to. (laughs) (laughs) You sneak up on a fight, all of a sudden the cops are like, hey, where did you come from? So there's value to it, but. I oh, know segways are heavy and they take huge amounts of uh, space and and recharging. And this this electronic unicycle. I my current job. I'm not allowed to take my work car home. I live about a, there's a I, I don't want to get too in depth on my current job, but I work for the military and I have a government car and you can't leave government cars at your house, so I leave it in an armory next to my house and I just get up in my uniform and hop on my unicycle, drive a, It's about a two thirds of a mile just right down the side of the street over to my house and throw it in the back seat. And when I go, so it's, it's a handy little weird toy, you know, sure. and once you learn how to ride it, it's, it's just a blast. Just <laughs> awesome.
2: An army of people on electric unicycles. Um, so <laughs> the, the Ant hill, the anthill to find North.
1: So there's a bunch of things you can use to find North. Um a lot of them are geographically specific. One of the biggest challenges in survival is the fact that what you need w- outside of the core things, I'm trying to, to think of how to explain this. There's some core things, like there's some core plants that you're gonna find all over the United States, right? Like cattail, pussy, oil, whatever you want to call it. That's for the most part all over the United States. But there's some area specific things that you're only gonna find in your area. And from what I've done and trying to learn about this um, finding north is one of those things and it, it even gets a little bit more specific when you get in and outside of canyons because ant hills at least in my area of utah and also in colorado where you guys are at i i'm trying to think how to explain this without like showing it on a page but you have the ant hill and on the very top of it is a small hole but if you look if you're looking at the top of it down on the bottom right hand corner is the actual entrance so there's a second hole everyone thinks ants climb clear to the top of their ant hole to get in it, to get it in and out but for the most part <clears throat> unless it's a brand new ant hill they're not done building but if you look in the corner i'm going to call it the bottom right corner and it depends on how you're looking there's a little entry hole and what's happening is the ants orient their ant hill to south the southeast, roughly. Um, yeah, I think here. Yeah, southeast. Because what's happening is the sun rises in the east and hits that anthill, but not directly. It sets in the west. And that hole is now not facing the hot part of the sun. So it lets heat in in the morning and it keeps it from getting too hot. The same way, like, uh, if you properly set up a Sioux teepee you want your, and if it's on the flat plains, and that's relevant because trees and mountains will change wind and change sun then if you've got a flat open area the the average of the ant is that that hole will be in the bottom right hand corner which if you look at a compass is south Does that makes sense hmm.
2: yeah is that so? Mm-hmm. is that they, the side so, that usually looks kind of more dirty as well you know normally when you look at the top down doing yeah. it, it looks like it the, adds the
1: ants are traveling in and out of the hole yeah so if you, if you, the best way to do this is to find just like a big open sagebrush area and take a couple okay? Because sometimes that holds on the south, sometimes it's on the east. Most of the time, I would say 75% of the time, it's, rough, it's roughly southeast, south-southeast roughly. And you're not going to get an exact bearing. And this is also in accordance to the spinning of the earth, not your magnetic north. So if you figure out your deck, your declination, which is the difference between true North and magnetic. North. <clears throat> so, you know, where true North is like in, in the area of Utah, I live, it's about 12, 13. So if I take the magnetic North and I align it and then I shift 12 to 13 degrees, um, from zero, so it's 13 degrees. Then that's the compass pointing at true North. And if I put that right on top of the anthill, about 80% of the time, southeast, there's going to be a hole. So if you understand that and you can see multiple holes and say this hole's here, this hole's here, this hole's here, well, the average is going to give you a rough guesstimate of north. Now, if you're in an area where you have a basic understanding, like if you're up in Denali and you know that or you're up, up in the Brooks Range, you know the mountains runs east and west, but you're in a bowl where you can't really tell that, you could use these anties. Just like in Utah, most of the mountains run north and south. Some of them kind of run northeast and southwest, and the U.N. has run east and west. So if you have that base knowledge and you're a little bit confused, or you're inside of uh, fallen trees like I was, and you step out in the open and you find yourself some ant holes, ant hills, and you look at the hole, you'll be able to tell roughly where north is. And if you know where north is, you know where you came from, or you know that there's an a road to your north that you can handrail back to another road that goes south and get back to your place it's kind of a quick reset once you get yourself. <coughs> so like in you know, australia they have termite mounds that will align themselves the same way because they want to absorb the morning light and not absorb the south light so they look like little dirt mohawks um, in some areas you have moss stuff that will grow only on the north side some places only on the south and has to do with the sun like it wants that early morning light but it doesn't want late light and you have to understand it's species specific so when you start learning these skills understand this works in this area and it may not work somewhere else but you can always test it like i i, I did a test when i was in Colombia. um this is a little bit off topic but I went to Columbia to the jungle Columbia, not district. Uh, we went
0: down <laughs> <laughs> like like in South America. No, no, no yeah. East, yeah. <laughs> oh. this is a, this is the overgrown one with
1: the drugs. So I, I went down there a couple of years ago with Bushcraft Global and Topps Knives. They had me as a video consultant making videography and taking pictures of the knives. And this is my first visit to the jungle while I was down there We met up with the Matisse Indians, or that I, I hate to call them Indians But that's what then the indigenous people of the Matisse. and two guys that we were with were three and four years old before the first European person talked to their or, or, or Before first contact right first white people showed up at the, these guys were three and four years old so they they literally were at the cusp of the transition from hundred percent tribal knowledge and information to Western contact. <clears throat> well, they are they screwed say,
2: now.
1: Yeah, I know. Sadly, yeah. Yes and no. Like they really like—they like flashlights. They like metal. You know, there's some things. You know, they like medicine to get rid sort of parasites. There's there's some value to it. But I I personally, and I'm not in control of the world, but I personally would love for them to. Retain the local knowledge. There's got to be ways to retain the lo- local knowledge with and, and still improve your life. And I don't have the answer. But anyway, so while we were down there, they showed me how they do a hand drill, and their hand drill was the most interesting thing I've ever seen. They they air dry um, or they sun dry this platform, and they they drill down through the base of the platform, and then they don't make a notch because there's no rocks in the Amazon basin and if you're into any kind of primitive skills that's kind of mind-blowing because i always tell people i don't need a knife i'll just you know flint nap a rock i'll get some sharp enough to to cut a, a rabbit or whatever the reality of the fact is down there uh, that there are no rocks what are you going to do the answer is they have a plant that they it looks like bamboo but it's not bamboo doesn't grow in that jungle that's a asian continent thing and they will they will split these two pieces of wood and rub them together and razor sharp or they'll use the jawbone of piranha like they, they have other solutions but again it's kind of mind-blowing so anyway they do this hand drill where they drill right through the bottom of it and it grabs i call it cotton it's not cotton but it grabs this cotton looking material and it's kind of like this rudger roll where it it, it mixes mixes the black ash of the hand drill with that thing and that's how they start their fire well they showed me that and i showed them the bow drill i don't know if i was supposed to but like I'll make a bow Here I am in the jungle with no knowledge of the trees and stuff, but I was able to take the the things that I understand or the concepts that I understand about the bow which is you need soft material, you need certain length, they have to be straight, that kind of stuff. And I just went and experimented, and I found because the area we were at was a farmed area, I found the bottom of of some imported um, uh, bamboo, so it was like a bamboo root. Well, in Utah, some of the best um, the best hand drill material is the root of cottonwood, and some of the best bow drill or, or friction fire material is just cottonwood itself or sagebrush. So well, I thought maybe this will work, and I was able to cut a chunk of straight uh, bamboo to make the hearth board, and a uh, and another straight chunk to make the spindle. And I was able to get friction. fire. That's a huge long story, but the point is, if you have a basic understanding of the characteristics of the thing you're trying to create then when you go to an area that you're completely unfamiliar with if you just chill out and experiment a little bit you can usually come up with success
2: Hmm. it's that understanding of the
1: fundamentals (laughs) yeah it's, it's the characteristics that matter not like everyone wants to talk about the latin name that's cool i get that you're trying to i i have a friend in um uh england that's phenomenal with the latin name the exact the exact names because we call it cattail here they might call it something else there so if he just boils it down to the latin then he knows exactly what the plan is which is a good learning technique but a lot of people when it comes to survival don't have the bandwidth to absorb that kind of information so i try to teach them the characteristics like the characteristics
2: so let's back up a little bit um obviously people are going to realize that you know a thing or two about survival no. um, <laughs> Have a listen to this <laughs> podcast a bit that, that, that you have some interest in there um tell a little bit about yourself a little bit about your background i know you were actually even on um discover a show on discovery channel mm-hmm. um at one point so let's let's kind of back up uh, and then kind of go forward again
1: so to put this all together okay so my name's Tyler White. It's good to meet you guys. <laughs> <laughs> you too, um, Tyler. Yeah. Oh, man. I am from southeastern Idaho. Grew up on a ranch. We had a, a ranch and a lumber mill. Um, we used to find arrowheads there. So I got really interested in flint napping and just natural stuff because while all the kids in the cities were going to malls, and whatever, I was out shooting squirrels in the pasture and catching and eating fish and that kind of thing. So that's where I got started. Um, I joined the military at 17 years old. Uh, I worked as a fire direction control, a forward observer, which is the guy that shoots lasers at things, and airplanes blow it up. Um, I needed education, so I switched over to a special forces unit. I um, did a thing called a 25 Bravo, which is information systems tech, like a network engineer that builds computers and systems. And then I switched to military intelligence. Um, on the civilian side, I worked in law enforcement for quite a few years. I, that's my degrees, criminal justice and psychology. Um, so yeah, that, that's a little more than you want, but that's, that's essentially who I am and where I got started. Now in the military, I was always super interested in field craft. Let's define field craft versus survival field craft in the military, is noise and light discipline, knowing what goes in your ruck and where, what doesn't go in your ruck. Uh, knowing how to swap your socks and deal with blisters and cover obscene amounts of distances with heavy packs But I'm probably gonna get some flack for this The military is not so much about survival people assume that being a soldier means that you're a survivalist You know, and I don't really think the modern definition of survival fits what soldiers do they field craft them because they're great at Again, noise and light discipline, land navigation, uh, medical uh, logistics and stuff. When you take that away, not all of them, some of them, but not all of them can function. Um, having said that, there is a survival school in the military. It's called Seer School. And the first week of that is about survival. So just like with martial arts, if you've only had one week military, you know, like your MACP classes or even a of MACP class, you just kind of tasted it. You don't really, you need more, right? So when it comes to survival, the vast majority of my education has been me searching that out on my own, me looking for people that have like <clears throat> this is a good example. I used to teach uh, Kali, which is a knife and stick fighting. I, I got my certifications through the military and then I did a lot of martial arts on my own. And one of my students worked at a place called Blade HQ, and I showed up to Blade HQ and was showing him how to use a karambit, which is like a hook knife. And the video guy there was like, Hey, you want to make a video? And my first reply was, Absolutely not. I don't want anything to do with being on YouTube. And then he's like, Well, we'll give you any knife you want. We'll pay for it. I was like, no, yeah, that sounds like fun. Why not? So we went out and did this video called Backcountry Out. And it was real gear heavy because it was me and another guy. It was a retired Green Beret soldier and his son. We went out and just stayed for a couple days. We shot squirrels and ate squirrels and set up traps. Um, we were all really good with like flint and steel and fire lays and that kind of stuff. But we failed epically with the bow drill. About half of what we tried, we failed epically. And it really had to do with the primitive skill set. And I watched the video afterward and I was like, you know what? I can't call myself a survivalist. I didn't know how to do bow So I've got a friend that teaches courses and I went and learned from him how. to. It teaches over at BYU Survival. And then I, I learned the bow drill. I was like, now I want to do the bow drill with different plants. Now I want to do the hand drill. Now I want to learn shelters. Now I want to learn. And I just kind of went down this rabbit hole. And this has been, I want to say eight years ago, that I started this. And I kind of used that same religious fervor to chase survival that I had used my whole life to chase martial arts. Because my cup was kind of full with martial arts. I still enjoy it, but not like I used to. So I started really digging into this primitive survival. And I met a guy named uh, David Holiday. And David Holiday is, he's one of the three guys that come up with Wilson on Castaway. He's one of the, he's kind of the OG for desert survival in this area. It's you'd be really hard-pressed to find more experienced instructors I don't want to say anyone's the best instructor But if I had to label someone he's who I would label for that the area for the desert So I learned stuff from Dave holiday who introduced me to more people who introduced me to Matt Graham um, I, I filmed I ended up filming with blade HQ videos like 60-something videos over a few years Um, They swapped out their guy and I ended up running my own YouTube channel because now I had all these contacts people wanted knife reviews Equipment reviews and I thought why not this is fun (coughs) excuse me and uh, In that process of hunting down these skills and trying to figure out You know playing the what if game. you know what I mean by the what if game? yeah so if you play the what if game you start out with what if I take you in the outdoors right now with what you've got? What if I take away your shirt? What if I take away your... And when you get to the bottom of the rabbit hole with the what if game, you've got naked and afraid with no back.
0: I was going to say you get <laughs> yeah. naked and afraid. <laughs> well, and only you get more than naked
1: and afraid. Because naked and afraid, they get a pick tool, right? Mm. So if you play the what if game, you eventually get to a point where you cannot survive. There are certain environments where you're, if, if I drop you naked in the Arctic, you're going to be dead in 15. I, I don't, you know, that's it. it. Just there's no way to get around. that. So there's some things that you can't play that games too far. But if you get realistic about it, you start running into a POW situation. Me being a soldier that's been to Afghanistan multiple times, that's a realistic possibility. So I got thinking, well, if I'm a POW, what am I going to have? What am I not going to have? Nowadays, I'm probably going to have a jumpsuit and that's it. Well, then that lets me know I need to know how to make shoes. That lets me know I need to know how to procure water. I need to know how to create friction fire from what I find. I need to know how to create tools without a knife. And once I kind of laid it out logically, I had this path for what I needed to learn. And Once I knew what I needed to learn, I went and sought out people that had that knowledge base. That's part of how I ran into Dave Holiday. That's How that's why I talked Blade HQ into doing a film series with the Boulder Outdoor Survival School because I wanted to go and check these guys out. Um so that's that's kind of how I got started on all this stuff. And here we are, fast forward years later. I've been to Columbia, like I was talking about, I've been to Northern Canada in mid-February, last February. I've been I've been flown back east to film with knife companies and I was out in Ohio here a few years ago at the Pathfinder Gathering, been to Rabbit Stick multiple times. These are all primitive gatherings for people who aren't. Super and that's given me the ability to meet what I would call a really core small group of people that are hyper interested in survival. Now there's primitive survival or primitive living, and then there's survival. I differentiate the two. Primitive living is kill an animal process the parts into meat and bones and sacks and and clothing and then live primitively purposely and there's a there's a knowledge base there that i'm at i don't want to do that personally because i enjoy equipment i'm a gear whore it's
0: okay to admit that you got an electric unicycle right (laughs) (laughs) the bad way to start it out with but anyway so I enjoy
1: the gear, but I also having carried obscene amounts of weight in the military enjoy the freedom of running through the mountains without carrying So there's got to be this middle ground where I can use the primitive skill set to create a bed and now I don't have to carry a a Sleeping bag I can use the primitive skill set to feed myself like on my morning runs that I do I'll oftentimes come back having had a good half of a meal. I know where there's purslane patches and where there's milkweed and in the area I live, there's apples and there's prunes and stuff. You know, there's different things that you can eat. Right now we've got Oregon grape. Oil. So I tried to eat while I'm running, you know, just from a nutritious perspective and from a training perspective. But having that ability means I don't have to carry it, right? If, if you know that there's water there, why are you carrying water up? there? You know that there's food there, why are you carrying food up? You know that where you're going, there's a whole bunch of grass that you can make into a bed. Why did you carry a mattress? Now, if your answer is because I prefer it and that's comfortable, I'm not going to begrudge you. that. Go for it. My idea, however, is I like to be free and move as fast as I want, go wherever I want. So that got me into fast packing. It's part of what got me into seek outside, teepees and tents and all that amazingness. Hmm. And it gives you more opportunity. It gives you more... Like if you go up in the mountain and you left your lighter hum, you don't have to turn around and go back. You just make a bow drill, right? It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you have to carry a bow drill and use it every single time, But you do have to practice it on a regular basis so that you can actually use
0: it, right? And that's an interesting concept to using your primitive skills, you're then able to go, you're able to go really lightweight, right? Yeah. It's, like a, it's like a form, it's like your form of lightweight Backpacking, fast packing, whatever whatever you want to call it. Um, exactly. yeah
2: it's like taking the backpacking light uh spreadsheet and just crossing things off like, well, yeah. that two ounces is just gone and this eight-ounce mattress is well gone. But how how much extra time now, say in the backpacker world, right? The backpacker mm-hmm. might justify it as well, I really want to spend my day moving. I don't mm-hmm. want to spend my day uh, making a bow drill and however long, say 20 minutes or something to start a fire. Um, and then building my pine bough bed and things like that. So how fast realistically say in a, in a high mountain environment that has combination of aspens and evergreens and regular grasses that we'd see, how, how quickly could you set up a camp that would keep you relatively dry, say in an hour of rain and warm without really having anything.
1: So I, I always like to go back to the equation, right? The equation has to have all of its known elements before you can put an, uh, an, a, uh, a variable into it, get an answer, right? So you've given me most of the equation. I need to add a few more and, and say that depends. Like how fast can I do it? How fast can you do it? How fast can other people do it? And is going to be part of the equation right so i personally think you should always have a lighter with you i've been out quite a few times without one that's eh, in utah i don't know that it's dumb but it's not smart if that makes sense so Mm -hmm. one of the things you talked about is a bow drill it takes me about 45 minutes with the right kind of material if i'm not making a string from natural cordage to build a bow drill with a knife and that's a nice bow drill that i plan on using again
0: <clears throat> um that's like a that's like a base camp bow drill like you make yeah, it and then you use it over a week period or something
1: yeah you use it
0: as many times
1: as you need until either the spindle or the hearth board's gone and then you just make a new one as you, as you place it right um i like hand drills more because i can make a three inch by five inch hearth board and have like a six to ten inch spindle and stick that in a versa cloth around my waist or back or something and it doesn't take up a lot of weight I really like the lighter the most. It is easy to drop down and crack a lighter open, fire, but it's also unchallenging. It's kind of like we do telemark skiing because basic skiing got boring. We do fly fishing because sitting on a lake got boring. I make friction fire because using a lighter is boring. Now, there was not There was a time in the beginning where that wasn't the case. I was the kid that would try to grab that green leaf and sit the lighter on until it finally goes – it ignites and then put it down on a pile and smother it with more, you know, brush because I didn't understand the fire truck I didn't understand how integral oxygen was and how much water was in that plant. I know that now. So now once I have that science, I'm like making a fire is easy. So to answer your question, if you're gonna go in a high alpine area, you said quake aspen spruce, uh you said no bow drill, I would how fast can you go or how quickly can you set up camp? Um there's some things that primitive skills, that technology is better. One of them is preventing, is like stopping the rain, right? Plastic or silicon nylon or whatever. It's always going to be better at stopping the rain than taking two hours at a super rush to get a mostly dry shelter, right? So I, I would say that's we're going to err on the side of technology. Grab what is your what you guys have that? Um, it's a it's a it's not the little bug out shelter. It's just like a tarp. GSX, a DST, DST. Thank you. So okay. I really like that DST because it's lightweight. I can throw it up in a minute, and if I pin down the sides and I put it kind of uphill, the rain's going to go around. That's kind of a a good solution. That. The next thing when it comes to fire is. A lighter with some uh, uh, road bike tire around the, the lighter itself. And the reason why I say that, if you've ever been back Easter in the jungle, nothing's dry. You might find some dry spots in clear cut areas. If you can find a clear cut area, the sun's there. There's brutal, but for the most part, nothing's dry. So you need that that intermediate space and a fire between the lighter and getting your kindling uh, started which is called tinder. And if you just put your lighter on that road bike tire, it's going to hold a flame for five, 10, 15 minutes. And if you're doing it right, that should be enough to work as a tinder to dry your kindling, which dries your, your finger size uh, sticks, and then gets into your larger material. And you got to get, got to get that train. So I think if you want to be super comfortable and super fast, you got to have a shelter, you got to have fire and then water, You either need to be in an area where you have no local knowledge of the springs. I drink out of springs and rivers all the time. Know which ones are safe. Or you got to bring something lightweight that can filter at a minimum cryptosporidium, Giardia, those seven. Now, if you go down south, you got to start worrying about viruses. Viruses, for the most part, need to be, quote, filtered by infrared or chemical because filters don't catch all of them. So, again, we go back to that equation. Part of the equation is the location uh, in the United States, South America, where are you at? The other part of the equation is what is the task you're doing? How fast do you want to move? How much do you want to work? How much time do you want to spend building a shelter? Is there material in the local envi- environment that you can build a shelter with? I did a, a class that I set up with David Holiday a year or two ago, and we went out, um, my total Tools where I it was it was in May so it wasn't quite warm yet. Um, I had a fall raven pullover anorak. I had a cowboy type hat, a uh, a wool vest, a wool sweater, and then a wool piece of cloth that was sixty inches by sixty inches, so that I could wrap that sweater and that vest and that jacket up in it around my And that's all we had: no knife, no canteen, no water, whatever. But the goal of this was to use as many primitive skills as possible to get better at. It. So we Got a hailstorm. We got hit by a hailstorm at about noon that didn't stop until 11 30 that night. During that time, a couple people got separated from the group. There's a little bit of a backstory there. And we started, we initially tried to start a friction fire three different times that failed. Um, we got really close, and I think we could have actually started the friction fire, but we were just kind of off. This was day four of no food. Um, by no food, I mean. We were eating thistles and stuff, but no like real food. Yeah. No, no, no Snickers bar. Yeah. Definitely no Snickers bar. <clears throat> so we pulled out the lighter that was a backup, which is again a safety thing. You got to be smart about this stuff. And we lit, we lit a very large bonfire legally in an area where it's okay to have fires and uh, in the middle of a rain as well. And the fire was big enough that you couldn't get more than about six feet next to it. And that blast furnace of a fire dried all of our clothing. Um dried oliver cotton clothing, which taught me something about a skill set that I was after. Because how do you dry your your clothing in the rain if you don't have waterproof clothing? That's how you you make a fire that's so big that it not only dries you, but it dries the rain that's coming right down out of the sky. Um and then we made holiday calls it an Apache match. And it's basically strips of, I'm gonna call it armpit juniper bark. And I say armpit. because That's about the only dry place left in the juniper if you pull them apart. And we just wrapped them tightly and created a giant cigar-looking thing. And we're able to transfer our fire to another location where we eventually had a second. So I, I, I'm, I'm completely going so far off on top of this. I can't remember where I was going. But the goal for me is to get those skill sets, right? Let's say I've created a fire and I've lost something. How do I transfer the fire? Well, there's two options. I'm going to burn a turd, right? An herbivore turd. Um, or I'm going to make an Apache man. Or uh, let's say I'm, I'm in a... I was, i am was running before I went to Afghanistan in 2007 up on a mountain. And the upper ball joint of my tire broke off. The tire tipped over. So here I am up on top of the mountain. It's about ready to be dusk. And that high in altitude, it's going to get cold tonight. And I got about a quarter of a tank of gas, and I'm not going to sit there and idle all night long. And I've got running, so I am not prepared for this situation. Um, but when you get in a situation like that, what do you do? You don't have a lighter, you don't have a uh, that type of gear. You have to make fire. You have to sit by that fire all night long. Fortunately, I was rescued by a jeep, and then I learned from my mistake and got hits in my vehicles. Unfortunately, it takes us making these mistakes often before we. Um fixers.
0: So and it just it sounds like you're using those skills. You're 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 going after those, right? You're seeking out those those skills so that you're mentally more prepared when things don't go your way. Exactly. Right? If if you had to make a bow drill right now, you'd be you'd be like, Well, it's gonna take me 45 minutes, but I know I can do it and I yeah. and I know I can do it well, where I would be like it's going to take me six days and I'm going to need YouTube because I have no idea what I'm doing. And YouTube, to to- YouTube is not <laughs> beneficial. I, I have a YouTube channel. That's like,
1: there's some things you need to do in person. There's a smell that the bow drill makes once it ignites. There's a sound that you're looking for. And there's a, there's a, like, nobody watches the tip of their bow when they're a brand new beginner. They watch the spindle. That's not what controls the spindle. The, the height of the tip of the bow is what keeps your string from walking you don't know that, you don't know to look for it. You don't know to look for it. You're going to struggle by watching a YouTube video and trying to actually do it. So So,
2: So early on, if Dennis is out in the woods and he's like, oh crap, I forgot this. And he says, I'm going to do my bow drill. And he uses his YouTube, eventually runs out of battery on his phone. What's going to keep him warm is the act of using the bow drill, not the fire that he actually was able to create from it.
1: True. Mm-hmm. True. Mm-hmm. You know there and there's there's a there's a bunch of gaps of knowledge that exist even in hunters. I hate to say this cuz I grew up hunting. But if we back up a little bit again, I taught a group of hunters how to make a fire. And that sounds like blasphemy. thing like, "Oh, hunters know how to make a fire." Yeah, most of them do with like gasoline and like as much flame as they can use and i joke about that but i i've still i still have people i grew up with like okay we're gonna we're gonna start a fire i'll get the gas why are you you live in the desert why like really and it it causes me to struggle so there's a bunch of knowledge gaps that are missing that primitive skills provide that i wish were more accessible that i wish that more people i don't know i I wish more people were as curious of me about about hunting them and i think a lot of people they want to know but they don't want to put in the work because survival's hard like when you talked earlier about uh, how long does it take to set up a a shelter like that man if it's if it's 2 p.m and i haven't already started on my shelter or my fire i'm behind the the bulk i personally if i'm doing primitive related stuff the very first thing i do in the morning as soon as the sun's up is make a good fire kit Right. That's before moving or anything else. I make a good fire kit and then we can talk about moving and then at about two, maybe 3 p.m. We start building shelters. So there's a lot of work that's involved in this type of stuff, which I understand isn't super lucrative, but that's not the point. Right. So if you're I was in the National Training Center in Southern California with the military and I stuck my 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 uh, sleeping mat on a on a uh, Antenna on a vehicle stick on the outside, and someone that vehicle broke down and got sent back to the rear. So there goes my kit. Right? When you run into situations like that that are just uncontrollable, or like I was in, uh, I went to Afghanistan as a contractor in 2017, 2018. You don't get to carry knives when you go through some of those countries, and there are certain things that you just can't have. So life is going to give you situations where. You're not going to have your lighter. I hear people argue that, oh, you can always have a lighter. Not really. You know, you all, most people can always have a lighter. Some people, they're, <clears throat> they can't have it, or they put it in their pocket and it gets pressed and it lets all the butane out, and now you got a dysfunctional. Like, there's a skill set to making fire with a non-butane. lighter. And I love the quote, and I don't know if it was Morris Kohansky or Larry, Larry Olson that came with this, but the, the more you know. The less you carry or the more you know the less you need i like the second version of it because i'll still carry stuff i love going back i love bringing it up but sometimes like this next weekend i'm going to go do a survival class um, where we're going to cover 50 miles and my packing list is essentially some cloth, which is again a 60 inch by 60 inch chunk of wool or cotton Um, we have an emergency backup water bottle that i don't intend on using and then, like, some extra socks and running shorts, no knife, no canteen, none of that.
2: So, that, that's what you
1: and Matt Graham
2: are doing, right?
1: Yeah, so uh, the, co- the company that's setting it up, Dan Baird, he runs uh, California Survival. Um, and then Dan, you had mentioned TV shows. I try not to talk about TV shows too much because I don't like people that do that, but I'll reference it so we know who we're talking about. Dan Baird was on. Uh, I think it was Nat Geo's, or either Nat Geo or History, did a, a TV show called Migrations where they walked across the Serengeti Desert. Um, Dan Baird was on that show. Um, I, I assume people know who Matt Graham was. He was on the show that I was on, which is uh, Bushcraft Build Off. He was on Dual Survival, uh, Live Free or Die. He was on an Ed Stafford show here a while ago. I'm sure there's more of them that I don't know about. Um, and then the show, yeah, the show I was on was. Bushcraft but Dan Beard's is the company that has it set up Matt Graham is who the instructor is my reason for doing this is because i want to i want to go to the next level and challenge myself to you know can i can i run for 50 miles over 4 days with no support with no water with no anything that sounds intriguing some some people like my wife that's painful <laughs> i, I, I can are saying, <clears throat> but i'm at the point where I'm curious, what can I do? How far can I go? You know, we're going to do it in a smart way. There's going to be a person that will have a, uh, you know, a, a small fast pack, backpack, with like fighters, and backups. For the most part, we're going to be un unsupported, which means you have to hone and rely on and get better at those primitive skills. And I know Matt has been doing this for decades. He's, he's on par with holiday as far as education is concerned and, when I've done runs with him in the past, he pulls over. He's like, "Hey, you can eat this. Check it out." And I just learned something. It's like, "Hey," um, it's a good example. When I was filming with him, everyone struggles to figure out how to hold the hearthboard down with the hand drill, right? Do you put your knee on it, your foot, do you have a buddy hold it down? Well, I was filming with Matt, and as a perfect example of the knowledge base that he has intrinsically and doesn't even think to explain sometimes, is he just used his hand to wipe some sand out of the road, put the hearthboard down, and put two big rocks. On it's like that is so simple and so dumb that I never even thought about. It. Here I am with this big struggle. It's like, "Oh, here, easy, you know," and uh, busted a coal super quick with it. So I try to hang out with and attend classes with people like this because just being around them, just like when I'm just filming, they're gonna teach me stuff. It teaches me different ways of handling and solving different problems, which means. In the future, when I'm up in the mountains bow hunting and I'm up there trying to find some elk and I'm two days deep and I drop my lighter, it's a non-issue. If, I, if a storm comes in and wrecks my tent, it's a non-issue. If I'm hungry, it's a non-issue. I know how long I can go without food. I know where to find fish. I know how to feed myself. And it's sad, but society has essentially lost a basic ability to live in the outdoors. We all came from the outdoors. It's not like there's anyone on this planet that didn't have ancestors that were making stone tools, eating whatever, we just don't know how to do it. Anymore, right.
2: Hmm. Yeah. We've definitely lost some knowledge over the last couple generations, you know, as people became probably more urbanized and, and used to the grocery store. I mean, we had one of our first podcasts, we had Ryan Lampers on and, <laughs> you know, Lampers does a lot of, homesteading kind of stuff right but not only is he an excellent hunter but he also does stuff like a lot of canning a lot of gardening chickens um using chickens to enhance his garden and so there's a lot of that the survival stuff um those are all skills that just seem to have at a minimum really really waned over the last 50 70 80 years or so we have to ask ourselves why,
1: right? Because it's easy.
2: Yep, easy button.
1: Because I get that. I get easy. I like easy. But anything in life that's valuable is hard, right? Going to college is hard. Working out is hard. Running in the morning for two hours is hard. But if I want to be able to go do this run this weekend, and I haven't done at least two hours a day in the morning, if not more, then it's going to be really hard. I, if I don't study in high school, college is going to be really, hard. I, I, I tell recruits in the military, you can either get, in, get fit now and enjoy this training you're about ready to do, or you can get fit in the training and embrace the suck because you're going to experience pain. So I think there's a value to life when you seek out things that are hard for the sake of hard. And I don't mean just use yourself. There's a difference. Um. But if, if you're looking at once you accomplish hard things, you feel good about yourself. You've you've learned something, you've developed something, you you've become better at something. I, I think that there's some massive value that we're missing. Like the Matisse, they love the lighters. they love the lighters, but they still carried around those um those hand drills in Columbia because lighters break, right? They really like machetes. Like that was like the most <laughs> i had a machete there it was a it was a prototype for uh, it's like the yana or something it's a prototype for cops knives and i could have made a ton of money off it. but it's not about that i went down there and they liked my machete my machete so much he traded me his quiver of poisonous darts and hand drill set for that machete and i got the better value unless you ask him then he got the better he was super ecstatic to bring a machete back because they don't have steel. They don't have rocks.
2: You, you got some poison darts from them.
1: <clears throat> well, I got some darts that I had to take the poison off because I didn't want to be at the time a federal police officer bringing drugs illegally into the into the U.S.
0: on accident. So we we the when water. we were there, I'm sorry. So, so, you had to wash them off before you got on a plane. Well, I cut the tips off. I wasn't going to play that game. Yeah. <laughs> we, when we were there, they took this.
1: There's a type of bamboo or a type of palm leaf that they split, and that's what they make their darts out of. And then there's a vine called the kirari vine, and it's a paralytic. So, if if you get stabbed with this paralytic, your limb goes. Left. The the interesting thing is, you can you can eat it. You can digest it. Your stomach will break it down but if it gets poked into your blood or whatever, then it, it paralyzes. So they make these little, these, uh, these darts and they dip it and they, oh, oh, they boil down the curare. So they grind up the curare while singing this little song that it's the names of the animals that they want to kill. And then they boil it in water until it's like this thick sludge. And then they dip the tips of these curare, these, these darts in the curare fine. And then they score it right behind that, uh, glue if you will with a uh, prana jaw so that when they spit it into the monkey if the monkey tries to pull the dart out the tip breaks off which is just brilliant and then they have these like nine foot long blowguns that'll launch these these darts like 300 feet up in up in and out of the canopy they can hit stuff as far as they can see in the jungle and they have a little there's these little piles of clay in the bottom of the jungle that are made by termites and they're pure clay, they call them chiniki pee. And they'll grab that and wrap it on the back of the, the dart and then put some of that cotton-looking material on the back of it lubricate it. So now this dart has poison on the tip that breaks off with weight in the back of the form the front and the back in the form of clay and cotton for lubrication. And they'll just shoot it right up out of the top. And whatever it hits, it paralyzes. It, which is just awesome. So I have that kit. I have all that stuff I brought back with me. But i was thinking they told me before i left because i was like yeah it's just some poison or whatever and i didn't think too much about it and then like no that's a schedule two drug that's a paralytic that they use in surgeries I'm like oh so <laughs> i'm like yeah i don't want to get caught in customs with accidentally bringing a paralytic drug through Colombia. that's bad <coughs> so. So
2: what happens? They shoot the monkey, monkey is paralyzed, falls out of the tree, and then they go stab it
1: or, or beat it to death or something like that. Basically, (laughs) if you watch BBC monkey hunters, the guy that I got this from was on that monkey hunter video. And if you see the monkeys, they'll shoot a dart into it and you'll see that like the monkey's arms up and then it drops. You can see the whole right side of its body goes paralyzed. Then they'll shoot another dart, shoot another dart and... I don't know how they dispatch them in the end, but I mean, when you're if you're killing a rabbit, you just grab it around the throat, you pull, you twist, it makes a pop, and it's dead. It's super quick. I have to assume you can do the same thing with the monkey. They basically just hit it with the paralytic and just pick it up, turn it into a backpack, and walk off. Like they're they're really quick at making stuff. They have these giant uh have you ever seen how big a banana leaf is? You can lay on six feet by three feet. They have these fronds that are the same way that they just fold over and they weave it together. And then they just have uh, the bark from another tree and that makes a backpack. You just do that in a few minutes and they'll carry out uh, tape ears with them. Or uh, there's some some pigs that they've brought in that they get loose every once in a while. so like Russian boar-looking pigs. And they'll just make a backpack real quick. One thing that I thought was so cool when I was there, I have this big... I have a tactical tailor backpack, big, huge ruck pack, and I've got a ton of batteries and camera gear and all this crap. And it was a, it's a beast, like going a mile through the jungle, will little swampy. And it's not a huge distance, but it's not about the distance. It's about climbing and stepping through mud and stuff. And we had to have four translators. One from English to Spanish, Spanish to Portuguese, Portuguese to Matisse to talk to so the the one question they wanted to ask is why do you carry so much gear? So they asked me why do I carry so much stuff. And they said, "We just we just make a shelter, we just make our stuff and then when we're done with it, we just leave it there. and we go and walk off." And it it really kind of struck me heavy, I was like, "Why do I carry so much?" Of course the answer is cuz I can't film with primitive skills. But it it kind of lays bare that paradox between gear and skill set. How much skill set is enough? How much? What? What do you want to do? Do you have the ability to go into the jungle with nothing and feed yourself and travel wherever you want? Because these guys do. They came five hundred miles southeast to get to where we we're at. Rode a boat through headhunter territory which is nothing. But well, they have the skill set, right? And uh, I think there's something super lucrative and interesting to me about learning how to do that in as many environments as possible because what else have we got to go do with our life right hmm.
0: I, oh, totally. I like, yeah i like what you said about you know if you if you're out uh bow hunting elk something in the mountains you know in utah mm-hmm. and you have a lighter with you but it, the lighter breaks it's like no factor for you you're like oh okay well, well that actually happened to me a few years ago. I was in,
1: uh, I was by Mount Watson in the Uintas and I started early and hiked up through three lakes. So I got to the point where the average hunter stops and where I want to now continue so I can actually see something, right? There's a point where most people are like, I'm done. And I think in Utah, that's where hunting starts. (laughs) Okay. So I got to that point and it was late at night. I, I was in my, my eight man teepee I got from Kevin like 2014 and, uh, I sit down and I was like, I don't have my lighter. And I remember exactly where it was. It was in my uh, pop holder in the center of my console where I put it. So I wouldn't forget it. Right. And I was just like, my initial, my initial response was a little bit of dread. I was like, it is cold tonight. I have, I'm going to be sleeping in this tent, but I'm going to get really cold. And I was like, no, I'm not. So go make, a bow. I'll go make a bow drill. And I made a bow drill. And in about an hour I had fire and I was chilling and it was a non-issue. It is that's not ideal, but it changes. Like there are people that I know that would heart hike through the dark to get off the mountain. Get back sure, to mountain,
0: right? Sure, yeah. Like I, yeah, my lighters broke. I'm going home. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, that's happened twice on the Alone show, right? Hmm. Sadly,
1: twice. I um, I'm friends with quite a few people on that show, and it shocked me. Even in the survival realm, how many people can't make friction fire or don't even try. That just kind of blows my mind i look at that as like a basic skill set because if you look at what you need to learn for survival you need to if we back it up and we say what is survival the answer is don't die okay well everybody gets that and the next question is how right and the answer is it depends and it depends on some factors like the location the plants you have ability to get get access to the equipment you've already got so when you start backing that up and you say how do we don't how do we don't survive well you come up with these basic skill sets that you need and it's fire water shelter food and then communication medical and eventually companionship right so the reason why i start out with fire is not necessarily because that's always the first thing you need i didn't need fire in the beginning in the jungle i didn't need really fire at all if i was okay risking parasites. right Mm -hmm. but it got cold uh, it got cold enough at night that i put a poncho liner over me but not cold enough that i was in any kind of danger so the rest of the world however you do need fire first because fire provides um heat so fire is shelter fire provides the ability to cook food and get rid of parasites fire provides the ability to boil water fire keeps animals away fire is a signal device so if you look look at what you really need fire is one of the best To answer all of those needs, right? So if you look at shelter, shelter should start out with the clothing that you have on your body and it should be appropriate for the environment and it should be You you should bring enough clothing that at the coldest time of the night you can sit there still and be fine. The problem is everyone goes one layer below So Usually when you're cold, all you need is one more layer just a blanket Just a jacket just something a little bit more. The problem is you don't bring it so shelter starts with what you bring, and you need to bring a little more than what you think you need. And then it moves to physical protection from the environment, like the teepees and this and the little bug out shelter and the tarps and stuff. Um, and then you move into comfort. Now we're talking about the stoves inside the teepee. You know, mm-hmm. in a slushy rainstorm. I know you've all been there. So once you've got that that shelter, hit dealt with the next thing's gonna be water because you can go about three days without water. The next thing's gonna go be going to be food because you can go about three weeks without food, but most people are going to go about 12 hours before they start getting right? So if you start looking at what you need and you start backfilling the skill set and the equipment set to fill the need, then you start answering the question of what is survival? What do I need? What what comes next? Right? Because that's really what people need to know is how to eat this elephant. Do it one bite at a time by playing the what if game, getting a realistic scenario and then answering the questions for that
2: scenario. So we we've had several instances where people have written in saying that our teepee and stove combination has helped them in a survival situation, right? I not that at all. Where 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 some where someone has been hypothermic for whatever reason, ended up building a fire teepee, kept them warm. So it's happened quite a few times. But Mm -hmm. I want to go back to, you mentioned the Alone Show. And you also mentioned that you had been in February in Northern Canada. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to guess that those two kind of combined there. Um, But I've watched a few of the Alone Shows, not Mm -hmm. a whole lot of them. And I noticed that there was different strategies. Some people said, let me fish for food. Some people said, let me go small game route for food and some people seem to be like screw it let me try to kill a moose for food mm-hmm. which strategy is the
1: most effective so we're gonna get into the realm of opinion <laughs> let me just draw that out before anything happens because i get comments on my youtube channel all the time about you should have done this and should have done that and it's just like this volatile conversation but i'll give you my opinion on so i haven't been on the alone show i was they did reach out to me and asked me to be on the alone show this year well they asked me to interview it and the process would mean that you interview and then they accept you that's I didn't go any further because I have a full-time job and um, the TV show that I did go on bushcraft build-off only needed me for a few weeks and I can take that much leave and still not lose my job so if I weren't active military I would love to be on the phone show I think that'd be outstanding but um, even though they asked me uh, Probably just not going to happen unless I got some sort of special release, and that's a that's a later problem. Um, when I went to Canada, I was filming with a company called Karamat Wilderness Ways, and if you look at Morse Kohansky, it's essentially the class that he's been teaching. Um, I think that's probably the best boreal forest training you can get on this continent, and it was phenomenal. I filmed uh, how to make buck saws, and we did friction fire while we we're up there when it was twenty below. Um, which ironically is kind of easy because it's dry. It cold is part of the fire triangle. Dry is the most important part. Oxygen and water are the two biggest factors. Um, we made snow sk- or shoe skis and stayed in shelter the whole week. It was it was phenomenal training. I would, I would advise anyone that wants to get winter training, go to just up by Edmonton, north west of Edmonton, uh, Canada, and to Karamat Wilderness. So that's where I was in February. Um, When you start out in survival, the first thing you think you need is food. And that's about the last thing. The first thing you need is shelter. The next thing you need is, and shelter, I mean by the clothes you've got on your back. The next thing you need is fire and then water. And then eventually you're gonna want food, but you're gonna need enough food that like 200, 2000 calories a day. Because if you're, there was a study done in Canada on how long you can last on a 500 calorie diet versus how long you can last on no, no food. And the interesting thing is you can go about 40 days with no food without any adverse effects because your body moves into ketosis and it eats fat off of itself. The other interesting thing is about three days of no food, you your mind clears up, your your body, you, you feel good. I mean, good's relative, but you feel good. You're a little bit hungry, but you're not like incredibly hungry. And you can stay that way for a week, right? You get tired fast, which is the interesting thing. Um, but that's if you're just drinking water, trying to have a little bit of vitamins, and going on no food. There was a guy who went three hundred something days with just vitamins and water, and he lost hundreds and hundreds of pounds. So it's been done. I don't, I don't suggest it. But if you're, you got enough fat on your body, you can go a long time with just water and food. Now, if you eat five hundred calories, ish, a day, um, you'll actually die at about twenty to thirty days because your body flips back and forth between trying to burn carbs and trying to burn fat. So the problem is fueling your body appropriately. And if you're just eating carbohydrates, you're actually doing yourself a detriment. It's better for you to move into ketosis if you think you're going to be rescued in 30, 40 days and just drink water than it is for you to try to snack. And that's part of what they're dealing with on the launch. The big issue on the alone show is not meat. It's fat and fish. So I talked with um, the winner. What is his name? He's one of the winners of the S- Dave, Dan. He was, he's a preacher that won, I want to say, the second or third show. And he said he lost weight in the beginning. But right before they rescued him, he started to gain weight. again. And he thinks that's because he was he was in a great place to find fish. And his body had to adapt from having carbohydrates in the diet to just having fish fat and protein and he said once he went through that change he started feeling great he said he probably could have stayed out there indefinitely as long as he had enough of these fish so you're going to go through an adaptive an, an adaptive change when you change your your food source substantially just like people who suddenly start juicing they lose a lot of weight so fish can be done the small game thing like rabbits alone, we know you can't just live off rabbits. There's not enough fat. Even if you're boiling them and getting the fat from the brain and the eyes and everything, you're you're gonna run into um, scurvy, run into problems, right? Um, well, if you're boiling if you're boiling uh, pine tree needles, you'll get your your vitamin C and you're not gonna have scurvy. But there's there's ways around it. Um, you're basically uh, starving because you're only eating protein. Your body needs Fat and other stuff to burn that protein. Now a moose, a moose is great. Um, if you talk to Jordan, who shot the moose um, up in the Arctic, I think it was. He's a guy from Idaho. Um, he did great until the Wolverine stole all of his his uh, piles of, of fat. So the ideal combination, from what I can tell, and I'm not a nutritionist, so you know, feel free to fact check. It's about 80% protein and 20% fat. If you can get about that kind of a combination you should be good for a huge amount of time so uh, yeah avoid the
2: carbs avoid
1: blueberries carbs are great but you got to have them. yeah you can the problem is carbs are great but you need a lot of them like carbs are phenomenal if you can the the problem is like if you're talking about blueberries you got to eat so many blueberries that you're cropping yourself i've done that with blackberries up on the border in canada They were amazing they had lots of sugars and carbs and two o'clock in the morning i was exiting from the bottom right (laughs) so it's not about good versus bad carbs versus protein it's about what you have available if you had you know an oatmeal store or an oatmeal tree with uh carrots and whatever carbs would be great the problem is in a in a survival situation there's the assumption that you aren't farming so you have to eat what's there and at least in the places that they've been there isn't a lot of carbs like in the jungle there's carbs all over the place. there's bananas there's all sorts of stuff the jungle is one of the easiest places to survive if you know what you're doing if you ask me right i need more knowledge down i think it would be easier to survive in the jungle with the basic basic amount of stuff because there's just there's food everywhere there's protein in rivers there's plants all over the place so it's it wouldn't be too bad but when they're going up to vancouver island and they're going to mongolia and they're going up to the arctic like the only carb source that i can think of off the top of my head in the arctic is the um the moths that the reindeer eat and if you don't know about it or know how to process it it isn't even a carb source so your only option is going to be like birds and rabbits and porcupines and porcupines you only find one every so many feet right they're kind of like cougar. There's they're, they're not together. And on the alone show they're there are they are confined to a five-mile square I think that's the biggest downfall. I wish that they could wander like if they had the ability to move 50 to 100 miles and get into big game and that kind of stuff I think that they would be there six months to a year without problem but when they're restricted to five miles and they kill you know the 17 rabbits and kill 30 of the well randy champagne killed 76 fish he lives down here in utah so he killed 76 fish in that little area he was in that's a lot of fish right they either gotta more of them have to swim in and backfill or they got to make more babies before that five mile area is clean all of the wild edibles are gone and if you can't move if you're if you're restricted to a short area it's only a matter of time before you're done i don't care who you are so I, i i guess like if i were to go on the alone show i definitely trap whatever I could eat. If it's got four legs, I'd be eating it. And then I would definitely, in the beginning, right up front, try to hunt some deer or moose or a bear. A bear would be great because there's so much fat on a bear. Um, And you could then mix that with, you can mix that, render it, and then mix that fat with um, your rabbit. Mix that fat with anything that you're eating and you'd be sitting pretty for quite a while.
2: And protect it from the wolverines.
1: Yeah, you got to have your, you got to have Jordan Jonas's hatchet specifically, the Wolverine killer. <coughs> so I don't know. Huh.
0: Yeah, that, that's interesting. Would you, um, I, I had a question about you said, you know, kind of, I guess it's not fasting. I just, just not eating, right? Yeah. Um, that's I mean, that's yeah. Pretty- Do you do that at home? Like it sounds like you do it when you go out the field. You might do four days this run or something. You might chew on some pine needles or something. But do you do, you do that at home too? Or are you like, oh, it's Monday today? You know, I'm fasting at home.
1: It's because I got too busy to eat, which happens ironically often. Uh, I'm I personally will eat one big meal a day and snack occasionally. Like let's just use yesterday. I woke up at five o'clock in the morning. I ran for two hours on the side of the mountain. Before I ran, I had about two liters of water. Trying to camel up so that i'm not getting thirsty on the runs, not bringing water um and then i had this thing called a bobo which is it's a little smashed oatmeal bar bar it,
0: yeah.
1: yeah it's 250 calories in it when you run you burn calories for the most part right so i had a little bobo i ran for a couple hours and then just got really busy i had i had like a gatorade that morning i don't think i ate until about four or five o'clock they just got really busy. That's not ideal. But I don't see the value in fasting as a training regimen. At least not in the way that you would do workouts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe periodic fasting, which is only eating during an eight hour window, that's fine. But as far as like getting ready for survival-related stuff go do a survival experience, see what it's like to go a week or two without food, and then you know that you can do it. Because the only really thing gained from not eating for a big amount of time is the the knowledge that you're not gonna die, you can do this. You. And you don't need to do that on a weekly basis to have that, right? Sure. And It sucks to go without food, and it's not, like anything more than about four days is unnecessary, Because or maybe five days, because at day three, you switched over to ketosis, and or fourth or fifth day like you're hungry but any any quote impurities or whatever that would have burned out of your system is gone when you first move into ketosis your body starts burning off stuff it wouldn't normally burn and that kind of like cleans the carbon out of the engine, right but after that just eat better foods less sugars more you know fish and salad type stuff and you're good to go so <clears throat> i don't see a benefit to now, I'm not a doctor. This isn't like I've never been asked that question. I don't see a benefit to it. I see a benefit running, everything. I see a benefit of working out. Everything. I see a benefit to doing long hikes and do all sorts of stuff. And I see a benefit to knowing what it's like to live by yourself in the backcountry for a week or two, at least with no food. I see a benefit because if it happens to you on accident in the future, you don't freak out and start hiking home in the dark because you didn't bring your lickies and chilies, right? Mm. (laughs) I've
2: I've done some keto stuff before over the course of the last 10, 12 years or whatever. Um, Sometimes, sometimes much more purposeful, but I I will say that when you actually get into ketosis, like I Mm -hmm. feel, I feel amazing. Actually, I feel like all of a sudden I've had unlimited energy. I got like just a coffee pot, you know, connected to my veins or something, giving me a drip. Or something so you know it seems to be maybe um you know i can screw it up pretty easy um but but i'll feel
1: amazing when i when i am you know you can you can just eat that way normally i mean if you look at native americans their primary food force food source prior to us interrupting was uh, buffalo right if you look at the uh um the maasai they live off of cow meat and blood for the most part and milk. That's their whole meal. And they are lean and ripped and fit and they run and run and run. Um I wouldn't get into ketosis and lose weight and get to the point where you're like stripping it off your body, but you can you can adjust that in the in the real world here by adjusting your protein to to fat intake. You just add more fat into that, take take away the fat dependent upon are you trying to Burn the fat off of your body or are you trying to put it back on, you know, because there's some value your body needs Fat it has it for a reason. just not too much I mean you gotta have enough to cushion your organs and if you got a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of a Chubby belly that's your survival tank for a week. You'll burn that right off There's no reason if you want why you can't move into ketosis and stay there uh, As long as you have enough water and vitamins and eat fat enough that your body doesn't need, you know, those carbs. so yeah, you can, you can move into it, but that, that would be better asked of a nutritionist than, uh, sure. too, to yeah. a lot
0: of I, mean, I was just wondering, I guess more so if you did it on, on the regular, right. Versus, versus what you said makes more sense, right? Like you've yeah. done it a few times, you know, you can do it. That's all you really need to do. You don't yeah. need to like prove to yourself every week that you don't have to eat something.
1: I try to run or work out or at a minimum sit in a sauna once a day. And then – go ahead. I see yeah, a,
0: yeah, well, you can keep going. I want to ask you about your sauna because I saw a picture of that one time. So keep Oh, nice. So – and I do
1: that because – well, let's talk about the sauna real quick. When I – in 2017, 2018, I was in Helmand, Afghanistan. That's the, the – I don't know if I'm staying it right. Rikistan Desert. But it's legit sand dunes and camels. It's hot, right? And I was stuck on a base because I was there doing stuff that didn't allow me to get out very much. And the base was a seven-mile diameter. So I would run that thing every day. I didn't care if it was 110 degrees. I would go out and run it. And when I when I would start in that temperature, I would start out filling my belly with as much water as I could handle without you know, overdoing it. And then i would run and i would we have these little buildings on the outside of it that had pallets of water and i just reload and i probably do two two and a half gallons of water and then of course i added salt i don't want to flush myself but i would process two and a half gallons of water in that heat well when i got home and it was 95 degrees and everybody's sweating and talking about how hot it is i'm running around thinking man this is great weather this feels good it's not 120 degrees like i I saw my body's ability to adapt to it that and i listened to way too much joe rogan so sure sure (laughs) eventually i eventually got a sauna and use it on a regular basis um to help my body adapt to being able to handle a lot of heat so if i want to go do like this run i'm going to do here next weekend i'm sure it's going to get really hot running through the desert you know in the sunlight it'll probably exceed the 100 degree barrier on a regular basis just from the reflective heat off the sandstone. but i know from spending good amounts of time in the sauna that i'm going to be just fine um so yeah that, that's part of the other part is well, heat shot proteins the cold shot proteins the endorphin release you get when you're done and as an example i don't work out on sunday but I'll, i'm happy to sit in the sauna which doesn't require a lot of effort but if you do it hot enough long enough it's going to put your heart rate up to 120 beats per minute which is equivalent to a fairly brisk walk so mm-hmm. it's kind of like again burning the carbon out of the engine it's kind of a i like it in fact i love sitting in the sauna and it was 95 degrees yesterday and i sat in the sauna last night because when i got out of it and i hosed myself off, it felt amazing
0: yeah and and can you tell me a little bit about your sauna because at least the one that i saw was yeah. It was kind of a portable thing, right? Oh, you're talking about that one. So I have yeah. a couple. I had
1: I had a corner one that was uh, infrared. Infrared will make you sweat. Now, I'm kind of heat adapted more than average, I guess, is fair to say. And it would take me 45 minutes of sitting in there before I'd start to sweat. And it wasn't a heavy sweat, so I didn't like that. And I sold it to someone who had a, some sort of physical disorder. They wanted a mild sauna that worked good. And I bought an actual... Wet dry sauna that you pour the water on the rocks and cook yourself at 180 degrees And and it's really a I call it a a one-and-a-half person sauna. It's small And it's 220 sits in my basement. So I bought that one. But what you're talking about is the uh, morse sauna from Russia so Every once in a while my youtube channel, I will get the most random stuff from people that ask me to demo. I Most in the beginning was all knives, but now I I had a guy in China wanting me to to demo a wine uh bridge. Like, dude, did you even look at my channel? (laughs) So anyway, these guys reached out from Russia. They have this tent sauna and it's got this giant blowtorch of a of a stove with panels that open on the side to kinda direct the heat up and you just put rocks on top of it. And um and it's just this insulated Russian sauna, and it's—I mean, when I mean Russian, like r- robust Russian—I would have expected to see in the '80s, like the uh, the ground stakes are giant corkscrews, like the type of thing you use to hold your dog down in the yard, and the uh, the it's all insulated and just this awesome this awesome sauna. Well, I took that one up to the up to the winters, right when the snow barely let us go up there, and I can have that thing. 120 170 degrees in like 15 20 minutes it Gets so hot so fast mm-hmm. um the cool thing about that is it's heavy you're not gonna backpack with this thing it's definitely like a truck camping thing but if you take that up to the lake and maybe you're camping with your kids and showering the lake is okay but sitting in the sauna and then jumping in the lake and then getting back in the sauna will make you sleep like a baby it's like having a sweat lodge. Sweat lodges are amazing too, but if you build a primitive sweat lodge, it takes a lot of time. You got to get dry rocks that don't crack. You're basically hugging the dirt, and it's you feel good when you're done, but you don't feel good during the process. Well, this sauna was awesome because it's something you can feel good during the process, and I plan on taking it with me next week. <laughs> so I, I have you. a,
2: I have a couple questions there and uh-huh. a comment. Backpacking uh-huh. often. I will set up a shelter like say you've been backpacking. You've been three, four five days, no shower. Huh? I will set up a shelter, especially if it's sunny, high pressure, like we get oftentimes here in the mountain West. I will set up a shelter, say close to a Creek or Lake. And then I will jump in that Creek or Lake and into that shelter, which is extremely hot because it is in the sun. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's often been kind of my shower strategy. And, Your portable sauna kind of brings us all around because we've had people ask us about making our tents into a sauna and I've just kind of put my arms up in the air and been like, I don't know. And they've primarily been in Northern Europe. um, The people that have sent the requests like, hey, can I make this into a portable sauna? I've been like,
1: I don't know. So I think you could. And
0: I've done it with your eight man tent. (laughs) <laughs> so, um, so are you bringing rocks? Are you bringing rocks and put them on top of the stove and okay, put so water on it? Or here's the thing: so, like, you guys's tent is very lightweight.
1: I had a hammock set up with an underquilt that I used to use, and I can take an eight man tent. That I can run around naked inside if I want, and a stove for less weight. So I keep talking about that eight man tent because even when I go backpack, if I'm going packing or hunting by myself. I can put a dog, uh, two or three kids, like myself, a bow. Just it's got space. It's huge, and it still only weighs ounces, right? So I think if someone wanted to take one of your tents and turn it into a sauna, I would just get the biggest stove that you have available, and I would get a tent. You got to decide how many people you want in it, but I wouldn't get more tent than you need if you want. If your goal is to turn it into a sauna, like I might take the. Uh, The little bug out shelter, I got the little bug out shelter from you guys and it's got those two right and left halves. If I got rid of that centerpiece and just made it a baby teepee, which I think is that's the size of your Cimarron, am I right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I would either do that or take a Cimarron, just like a medium, small size something. And I would get the biggest stove that you sell and I would put dry, dry rocks right on top of that stove. And I would open the front of it up and I would open the flue as much as possible or not even install the flue. And I would just cook it as fast and as hot as possible until it got obscenely hot. And then um pour water on top of that. And it would work, it would work just like a solid There's no reason why you can't. The reason why I say the biggest stove is I have a I don't know what size my stove is. I want to say it's a medium-sized stove. And it'll cook for a couple of hours, but because they're so ultra light, you're not gonna not gonna hold the radiant heat. But even with the stove that I have, when I put rocks underneath it and on top of it the heat lasts longer because the stove made the heat the rocks hot and even after the fire is completely dead those rocks are still throwing heat off but if you add the element of heat transfer by pouring water on top of those rocks and misting the hole inside it's going to get ridiculously hot i i was in that eight man during a slush rainstorm that was snow slash slush up on in the wasatch mountains i want to say 2015 ish and it, we we checked the temperature. It was 80 degrees in there. I was laying on top of my too big of sleeping bag in my underwear going, this is a little too toasty. It's just because I put some really hot fuel in there and cooked really hot. So um, I think I want to take one of those out and try that now that you've said that because that sounds like a good idea. But, uh, yeah, if someone want to turn into sauna, get the biggest stove you have. rocks on top of it put rocks under the bottom pour water on it sit naked and cheer you know
2: we'll we'll, we'll have to talk about the cimarron sauna on our design um chat later
0: oh yeah (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yeah. um that's that's
1: so funny um well the problem is you almost if you want a sauna you need thicker material uh it's i'm not saying you can't do it but it's, it's like it's not it's not efficient it's right ideal. it's
0: yeah it's
1: not, ideal. not yeah. ideal no no let
2: me
0: you it, but then you
2: are having to carry the material yeah. Yeah. let me go to the rocks real quick you also have mm-hmm. to be careful
1: what style rocks yes you put on the stove they will crack they will spit at you what i do i try to find a trail that's had a lot of sun in it because then the rocks that i'm grabbing have a higher probability of not exploding.
0: I don't know how to explain that so when you say explode you mean like like boom boom like, I mean legit. It, holy
1: crap, what was that um I don't think I've never seen rocks blow up big enough to actually hurt you. I would sure. think like as far as actually damaging you, maybe getting in your eyes, you know maybe like a little bit of a a skin cut so it's not gonna like murder you with these rocks but, you know it really. Harsh as you're cool <laughs> when your rock blows up on your sauna, <laughs> and you think yeah, like
2: oh. you seek outside does not support this. Yeah, uh, no, like, no yeah, sauna.
0: Yeah, never use. mind, never <laughs> mind. We'll take back the sauna idea. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. My my other one I've got I have special rocks that I keep in my
0: backyard that I know will work. So yeah, like lava rocks, right? Like I, th- I think lava yeah. rocks are pretty. They look like a gray granite. I don't, I, I haven't
1: used granite and I don't think you can use granite, but that's what the rocks look like. They're an actual, they're, they're sauna rocks. They're made for that purpose. Yeah, and do, I they like have little,
0: do they have little pores in them almost? Not or, really. You yeah. don't want, <laughs> well, you want porous enough that it can allow the
1: the stuff to get out, but you don't want it so porous that it absorbs and retains. Like you don't want water that will retain, We don't want rocks that retain water. I wish so, I had more science on this, not Yeah.
2: <laughs> Maybe we'll get some comments on our um, podcast email. Maybe someone will send in, this is the type of rock. To this is, yeah, know. send us a rock.
1: That, that won't blow up. Right. Yeah, <laughs> cook them and see what happens, right? It's messed up. So, I don't. <clears throat> yeah. well, so, uh,
2: well, awesome. Where can uh, people find out more about um, your
1: videos and everything? So I have a YouTube channel called T Jack Survival. It's T-J-A-C-K space survival. Um, I've got the same thing on Facebook, same thing on Instagram. And uh, as far as me locally, I teach survival courses. I'll usually go about, I try to go out for two or three days in the West Desert with I want to go out there with nothing. I've found people don't want to go with me when I do that. So (laughs) um, I usually give them like a poncho, a canteen and a pocket. And then we try to stay there for at least three days. And you wanna eat something, you've gotta find wild edibles. I'll usually I try to bring a rabbit for the last day. That way you've got game processing. That that would be the best way to look me up. Go to T Survival on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, you know, berate me for not knowing the right kind of rock to put on a sauna or whatever <laughs> else. I failed that today.
0: Your ketosis explanation. Or, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. your uh should you should you get fish or shoot a moose right the, the, they can I yell you for he, that both don't rely on any of them.
1: you know i you know who dave nisha
0: is no nope.
1: uh, one he on, uh he's a friend of mine that here's low lives here locally he was the guy that got kicked off because he got too skinny and he had a bunch of fish and i think he came back the second time i think he was on there on alone twice but he and i were talking he's like you know if i had to do it again the first thing i would do is just set up the base the most simple of a camp and then i would just hunt I like, here to kill it here i would just go straight after a deer or a moose large game and then start worrying about everything like that makes sense especially where they put him in a location that gets progressively older and that guy a lot of people don't know he's lived off off uh grid for six plus months in caves him and matt graham if you read matt graham's book um they worked at the boulder outdoor survival school for basically six months during the summer so during the winter they both decided to just go live in a cave and they brought some meat with them in the beginning but they were living through the winter in wiki ups and caves for six months in utah that is no simple task like that's absolutely respectable so it's not like he doesn't know what he's doing probably more than i will ever know But now, if you're in an area where there isn't any big game and you're not allowed to leave, what are you going to do? You're going to eat mm. what's available until you run out of what's available and then you're going to have to tap out and run out of food.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Hmm. Seems like not being able to move is a big deal.
1: It's a major conundrum,
0: but I think the producers do that on purpose.
1: What do I know? But if you have a show that never ends, and there's no culmination and no one finishes. Like. If you're like two years later going who's gonna tap out and they're like not me i got a cabin i've i've started a new tribe then
2: <laughs> <laughs> i've won all dick Chromekey on us so we, so we bring up the steve opat reference to dick uh-huh.
1: so oh that guy that guy's responsible for me in a him and um grizzly adams are responsible for me taking the life path that I made being in southern Idaho like I wanted to be a guide in Alaska and I wanted to be like an Alaska mountaineering guide. I actually went up there right out of high school in 1998 worked as a rafting and ocean kayaking guide and then I come back and worked as a mountaineering guide. Like those guys set the standard for me as a kid for you know outdoor living and stuff. The only reason I didn't stay up there is because I couldn't really spend time with my family. They couldn't afford to fly People don't realize how far Alaska, how far away it is. When you realize that Salt Lake to New York is 2,000 miles, and then you realize that the bottom of British Columbia to the top is 3,000 miles, and you haven't even accounted for the Yukon before getting into Alaska, you realize how big, how far away it is. And I used, I, I did these amazing things up in Alaska. I would go hiking and see these awesome views and stuff. I was up there by myself. And I could handle it by myself, but I just got to a point where you know what? Well, I want to share this with family. I want to have, I want to be able to pay the bills and do those type of things. And I didn't, you know, being a guide doesn't pay that kind of money. So I eventually just went back to Utah or Idaho and Western United States and did military stuff and ended up where I'm at. I think it was a good decision. I'm glad I had the experience. Sweet, man. Well, uh, thanks, Tyler.
0: Yeah. Thank, thanks so this much for, for the so You, 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 Welcome to the uh, ADD
1: ramblings of my brain, searching down rabbit holes. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll throw you in with herring sometime. <laughs> I'm down. I'd love to talk with other people, especially people that have got good stories. It's it's. I like that. Very cool. Mm-hmm. We need Thank to go you. to you and I need to go to Alaska. That that's what needs to happen. We need to go make some videos and go hunt something. Next year, <laughs> Alaska or New Zealand. We'll get a hold of uh, the guy that owns Swazi, go down to New Zealand and schwack some stuff. He sent me, he, he, he's uh, supported my channel and sent a few pieces of gear. And I've, I've had a life dream to go down there and hunt. and Just do it like a semi-primitive version where you go out with your rifle in a pack and you stay for two weeks. And you don't kill something, you don't eat. Yeah,
2: you can hunt pretty much anytime you want in New Zealand.
1: Which is
0: Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Cool, man. Well, again, really, really appreciate you coming on and yeah, uh, fine, good luck. Good luck with your 50 mile run soon. I'm going to get smashed. He's going to run me into the dirt. Like I'll send you pictures. <laughs> yeah, please do. Please do. Sure. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Thank you.